This is Manu. Can you hear me? Yes, it's one of your hosts from Podcast Sans Frontieres coming to you with a special announcement. I've started a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. The Patreon will help support Podcast Sans Frontieres and a few other projects which I'll get to shortly. Since you're listening to this on your Metal Gear feed, let's start there. On top of our ongoing games coverage, we want to bring you more interviews and deep dives into Metal Gear adjacent media. This will include episodes with speedrunners, documentarians, as well as just thoughtful fans weighing in on the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Additionally, we hope to review upcoming films like No Time to Die and Matrix Resurrections and how they compare to the Solid series. We also plan to dive into some of Kojima's favorite films, including those from John Carpenter, James Cameron, and the aforementioned Bond franchise. We hope to make this a monthly feature soon and have patrons vote on which films we cover. In addition to expanding podcasts on Frontieras, I want to announce two other projects I have coming your way. First, in anticipation of the 20th anniversary of the Lord of the Rings films, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a celebration of the iconic trilogy, which I will be doing alongside my good friend, and massive Tolkien nerd, Emily Robinson, who you can find at Emily Robinson PT on Twitter. Together, we hope to show our quality as we delve greedily into the cinematic and emotional depths of our favorite fellowship. This podcast will launch in October 2021. Next up is Searching for Friends, a Final Fantasy VI podcast. Any Podcast Sans Frontierist listener will know I talk glowingly about this game all the time, so I grabbed one of my best friends, Steven, to help break down this seminal SNES RPG. Something just feels right about covering a game that sees a world broken beyond recognition and the work we must do to mend it. We promise to bring the 16-bit classic to life, or I'm the son of a submariner. This podcast will launch later this year. And that's just where my mission begins. A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, Studio Ghibli, Neon Genesis Evangelion, and Marvel Comics and Cinematic Universe are just some of the other ideas I have for content in 2022. This initial launch of the Patreon is just to help keep the lights on and my cats fed, but stretch goals, subscriber polls, and bonus Patreon-only content will all be announced in due time. As they say, the best is yet to come. Check it out at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. (laughs) 
has changed. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian. Hi. <laughs> Today's episode is Old Sun, our kickoff episode for Metal Gear Solid 4, Guns of the Patriots from the year 2008. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Merrill marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the tables for discussion as we progress through the games. So we will do our usual kickoff routine for a new game. Production history, our meet-cutes with MGS4, games of 2008, yada yada. You may have noticed some new intro music today. Yeah, we're rolling with the old snake theme now that we are a matured podcast. (laughs) We're entering the back half of the Solid series, but rest assured, we don't plan on letting up with the rigor and effort we put into these games. We'll crawl through a microwave chamber to keep our analysis coming. And with that... Let's lead you into the development history of Metal Gear Solid 4, which is something I followed very closely. More on that later. The obvious place to start is, Kojima did not want to do MGS4 after initially not wanting to do MGS3. He was acting as a producer to the PSP game MGS Portable Ops, which had him stepping back from writing and directing. At a 2005 Sony press conference prior to E3, MGS4 would be announced with director Alan Smithy, an alias usually used by a director distancing himself from a film. In actuality, MGS3 co-writer Shuyo Murata was slated to direct. But at E3, after a massive negative reaction and apparently death threats, Kojima announced he'd be writing, directing, and producing the game under his new studio, Kojima Productions, which was formed shortly after MGS3's release. He revealed the story would continue sometime after the events of Sons of Liberty, and many fan favorites like Meryl, Otacon, and Raiden would be in the game. Most importantly, the player would once again be fully in control of Solid Snake after the swerves of the previous two games. I I do really quickly, just thinking about it, I wonder what the distribution of alleged death threats would be from America or from Japan. Because I would be willing to guess by that point, I mean, Metal Gear was big here, but I don't know if people had really, maybe this is me looking back on it, but, you know, not not really being involved in the series until around then. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if people really here really had that auteur relationship with Kojima then. Yeah. Um, And again, I don't know too much about this, but if you, I also want to look at, let's say, the threat, uh, death threats that like Anno got uh, for the end of Evangelion. Not like the end of Evangelion, but the end of Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yeah, like I wouldn't put it past American audiences to be like that it towards really something. Big here but at that point, at that stage, yeah, so. not this point. Uh, we've seen that reaction towards other things, but I don't think Metal Gear had that cachet with the American audience. Not too. to say that again, Metal Gear fans, American Metal Gear fans, and American Eva fans are insane. Yeah, absolutely. But like, I don't think just just raw numbers. Like, you're not gonna. It's it's still no matter how insane a fan base is, you're you're. It's gonna be a very very small percentage of people who actually do, like issue death threats, and like just the the, the sheer gap in, in fan base size in those in these two countries. Yeah, I feel like it would mostly be Japanese fans. Yeah, I, I'm also very curious because 
Um, you know, end of Evangelion and the series, that was like late 90s where the internet was still fairly new to everyone. It hadn't really um, heard here yet. And then, you know, in 2008, you could at least theoretically get on a message board and tell Kojima to die or like, you know, be a dick <laughs> yeah, like that. But yeah. I don't know if that's if that's what they're counting as death threats or, you know, direct hand, you know, written letters yeah. to him yeah. himself. Yeah, that's the thing too. Who, what American, let's say... I would say that's usually people in their 20s, early 20s who just like that. Mm-hmm. How many Americans are mailing letters, paying for overseas? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, th- I really just bring this up because I think um, there is still the the stereotype of like Japanese culture being really respectful and, and demure and quiet. And it's like, I mean, yes, in a, to an extent, but like, like more so than us, but mm-hmm. they're still crazies there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No one's sending an auto gyro. Oh, sorry. I'm not going to even try that Simpsons quote right now. <laughs> I, I do not have it all in my head. Fraud. You're a fraud. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that first look footage specifically. It was using Snake Eater assets, but it showed Snake hiding behind a wall that would be blown away and an entire battalion of soldiers being alerted to his presence. In those few seconds, I already got the feel for the Warzone environment and themes 4 would play on. Later that year, the game would be officially confirmed for the PS3, which was slated to be released the following year. The PS3 would become to known as a notoriously hard system to develop for, and it used a very specific high-concept design in how it handled processing, which I honestly don't know enough to speak to intelligently. Uh, Futura Sound has a great YouTube video, The Secret Mechanics of MGS4, which goes into this fully in-depth. Having played uh, Astro's Playroom, I feel like I'm very well versed in the innards of a PlayStation, having jumped around inside them now. <laughs> oh, yeah, I hear that game's great. Wonderful game. Yeah, delightful. Mm-hmm. With some Metal Gear Solid Easter yes. eggs or whatever Several. you want to call. Uh, but of course, Kojima Productions would get hard at work figuring out how to best utilize the hardware to bring the battlefield to life. The main concepts behind game development would be sprinkled out in the coming months. Solid Snake would be much older this time around, and working with Otacon through a miniaturized Metal Gear model known as the Mark II. The game would often find Snake in between warring factions, and psychological warfare and mental health would be prioritized in gameplay and themes. And the camouflage system would be evolved into the Octocamo, taking a cue from real-life octopi for dynamic camo changes. The subtitle Guns of the Patriots would be announced at the 2005 Tokyo Game Show alongside the first in-game footage running on the new engine designed specifically for the PlayStation 3. Among everything else, the question at the center of all the trailers and preview footage was, will Solid Snake die at the end? And not only die, but kill himself, as the trailers show an old Solid Snake putting a pistol in his mouth um, and cutting to black as a bullet is shot. As usual, the team did both military training and scouting of physical locations to create the systems and environments for MGS4, including Morocco and Peru for the Middle Eastern and South American chapters, respectively. This time, however, the team spent more time with the current news events, specifically the war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan. They were constantly doing all they could to learn about war zones and private military companies, or PMCs, operating in our real world so they could bring that authenticity to the game, which, IMO, they very much did. Voice casting-wise, both the English and Japanese versions pretty much had their full supporting cast return. Eva would find a new voice as a much older character, and both ocelots are notable here. 
For the Japanese version, the voice actor for Ocelot, Koji Tatani, had passed in 2006, so his role was played by the original Japanese actor for Liquid Snake, Banjo Ginga. The opposite is true for the English version. Though Kojima maintains it was the plan all along, Patrick Zimmerman, the voice actor for Ocelot and MGS 1 and 2, would do the entire Liquid Ocelot performance, as opposed to getting Cam Clark back, who had done the Liquid monologues in MGS 1 and 2. Um, That said, there's a lot of Cam Clark audio in this game in the Liquid flashback moments. In a change from previous games, voice acting was done after the motion capture performances, so the voice actors could work the timing and physical performances into their dialogue. This was all to enhance the submersive visual presentation of the game. The goal is to steep you into this war-commodified world, so tuning the audio to the visuals was a central goal of the dev team. Returning to work on the musical end of things would be Harry Gregson-Williams and Norihiko Hibino, Metal Gear vets by this point. Of the notable contributors to the soundtrack would be Ennio Morricone, uh, the classic Hollywood composer. His influence is most prominently felt in the game's ending, Here's to You, which was originally composed by Morricone and Joan Baez for the film Sacco E. Vanzetti. This game's version would be performed by Lizbeth Scott, and I'd be remiss to point out that this song generally would become a meme within MGS, as it would feature prominently in MGS V Ground Zeroes. Also prominently featured is Love Theme, a haunting track featured in trailers and eventually the game itself. It plays as the opening track while Snake delivers his War Has Changed monologue. (laughs) Sung in Hebrew by Jackie Presti with lyrics by Kojima himself. I'm going to read a translation of the lyrics, noting very much that this is a translation of a Japanese speaker for a song meant to be in Hebrew. Something something meme of language, you know, a total Metal Gear concept. The lyrics go as, Closing my eyes to the sound of gunfire, uttering a howl. In a flash I am switched into despair. Everything for the one who lives inside a nightmare, missing you from the bottom of my heart, wishing for the world that ran out of tears, my heart is already dead, the hope, missing you so much, it hurts. Um, I also want to add here real quick that Donna Burke, who you would know as the voice of your iDroid from MGSV, and uh, I think she does um, Heaven's Divide, which is the main song from MGSV. She kind of does a Metal Gear Solid concert performance, and she performs this song, and she's kind of massaged the lyrics into something a little more, you know, coherent and less of a, you know, double translation that I read to you right there. As the launch date approached, Metal Gear Online was announced to be packaged with MGS4, supporting 16-player action. Pre-order packages were also revealed, which of course I got in on. It came with a DVD called Metal Gear Saga Volume 2, which had various history and trailers for the game. 
Among the last news before release was the game had trouble fitting onto a 50GB Blu-ray disc, so the game would have to be compressed, then installed on systems, leading to longer load times. Which brings us finally to June 12, 2008, when Metal Gear Solid 4 was released worldwide, just a few months short of the 10-year anniversary of the, Metal, of the original release of Metal Gear Solid. The game would go on to sell 4.33 million copies and get re-released with the Greatest Hits banner. Critically, the game was a massive hit as well, at the time, pretty much perfect and nigh-perfect scores across the board. There was some dissent about the quality of the story and the length of the cutscenes, but overwhelmingly people loved it in its wake. Above all, it was a visual and technical marvel, putting the PS3 front and center as a tech powerhouse, at least in its potential. So now we typically would go into how we came to MGS4, but before I do that, I want to read an email from a listener. This is from Cassie, or Tanuki Maki on Twitter, who's a friend and someone I've chatted with several times about MGS, especially as it relates to masculinity and homoeroticism. But Cassie has a specific angle that Brian and I had previously challenged, so without further ado. As your MGS3 journey comes to a close and MGS4 is on the horizon, I felt the need to write in. It's no secret that neither of you hold a deep love for MGS4, but I do. And what's more, it was my entry point to the series. Maybe that's why I think of it so affectionately. I was always kind of aware of Metal Gear Solid growing up as a pop culture figure above anything else, but I was a Nintendo kid and didn't really have the opportunity to play the games. When I was 14 or so, my brother's friend brought his PS2 over to show us MGS3 and how cool it was you could look at titties during the cutscene. I agree, that's very cool. I didn't see the game again after that day. I also worked really hard to unlock Snake and Super Smash Brothers because I thought the codec Easter egg was really funny, even if all I knew about Snake was that he hid in boxes and the alert sound effect was really cool. In 2010, I dropped out of college, moved back home, and met my partner. Then I would have my next exposure to MGS, the Monster Hunter crossover bonus missions in Peace Walker on PSP. Weird. I wasn't familiar with Monster Hunter or Peace Walker, but I sure did like this guy, so I'd let him show me how cool it was. Weeks later, for our first date, he took me out for burgers and we went back to his mom's house where he was living at the time and played through all of Metal Gear Solid 4 in a single sitting. We pulled an all-nighter, of course, but only managed it because he was trying to tackle a speedrunning route, so it was more cutscenes than anything. The story was... impenetrable. You mean to tell me that all these guys named Snake aren't the same guy? Rob did his best to explain it to me, but it sure left me with a lot of questions. More than the gameplay, I was really drawn in by the relationships characters have for one another. Long, deep, and storied histories that say, you gotta play these other games. There's a depth to these games and the series that drew me in immediately. I had to know everything that led up to that, at the time, culmination of the story. So I did everything I could to learn. I've watched speedruns, playthroughs, theory videos, and read a lot of retrospectives and wiki articles, and now, here I am listening to you every week. 
To this day, the only MGS game I've played hand on controller is MGSV, and I could write a whole other rambling email about that, which please do. But I've been wanting to play through them all myself to really experience them firsthand rather than over and over secondhand. I started listening to your pod thinking it'd quell that desire, but now I wanted I want to do that more than ever. Anyway, this email is long enough. I won't defend MGS4 as an objectively good game, but the allusions to something bigger and better throughout that game are what got me interested in the series in the first place. Early in your podcast, Brian said 4 might be the only one you couldn't start with because it would turn you off entirely. I just wanted you to know the opposite was true, at least for me. Thank you both for diving into Metal Gear Solid. I love the careful and thoughtful perspectives you bring to the series. Best, Cassie. Uh, well, thank you for those kind words, Cassie. Yes, thank you. Um, and Cassie also provided some fun links for us, like a great speed run from uh, AGDQ 2018 and an article about homoeroticism in Metal Gear, which I will cover heavily yeah. when we uh, get to Peace Walker. But anyway, I figured Cassie's email was a good place to start because in all honesty, I do love Metal Gear Solid 4. We've shat on it a lot, and I won't pretend we haven't. Though it's the least of the solid titles to me, it's more Return of the Jedi than Rise of Skywalker. A cromulent finish after spectacular predecessors, and parts I enjoy as much as any in the series for differing reasons. I won't belabor the point. Hopefully this chapter of our podcast will demonstrate my love for it. I, it's a good game. Like it is, a, it is an objectively good game. It's just, to me, it's not an objectively great game. Mm-hmm. And especially when it's stacked up against possibly every other title in the series being an objectively great game. Yes. Yeah, obviously, your mileage may vary on that, but um, it's not. It's like a Zelda game. It's always going to be c- competing with Titans regardless of what you do. Yeah. Anyway, MGS4 was a big one for me personally. During our MGS3 coverage, I mentioned I was very much into my social life and Snake Eater snuck up on me. Not so with MGS4. By 06, I had completed undergrad, had a steady income, and most importantly, was now constantly online and in touch with gaming news. The trailers gripped me from the get-go, from the idea of Snake being up against entire battalions to the idea of Snake being up against the specter of old age. I was a bit thrown by old Snake at first. I did initially want more solid Snake as the Philosopher King at the end of MGS2, and it was clear we we weren't going to get Snake at his prime. But I was sold on the tone and aesthetic, especially with the exquisite trailers Kojima was now cutting for his games. And right away, it seemed as if Snake was on a final suicide mission, one last punishment he must endure. So the stakes seemingly couldn't be higher. And of course, 2006 to 2008 is in the deep fucking shit of the war on terror, and the game looked to go into that as well. Then came the later trailers, the ones with Raiden and Vamp and... Hoo boy! I've made clear I really love action films and inventive creative action at that. So to see a gray-foxed Raiden breakdance fighting Bamp complete with multiple penetrations, it was dope. Maybe I'm a sucker, but it was dope. Gay. Very gay. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, I think it's definitely very gay and intentionally so. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a PS3 was purchased in early 08. Uh, which is a common thing as PS3 sales shot up with the release of MGS4 coming. And I remember vividly the game's release date. It was my work's baseball outing to see the Cubs at Wrigley. At that age, I'd usually have several beers at the game, especially for a fun team like the 2008 Cubs. The D. Lee, Aramis Ramirez, Carlos Zambrano teams that were good. Anyway, I bounced early. Thankfully, the game went into extras. Jim Edmonds was the hero of the day. 
I took the train back to my car and drove straight to GameStop and picked up my pre-ordered copy. It was go time. Until Phantom Pain, MGS4 would be the MGS game I'd played the most. It was the only MGS game I owned for several years at that point until I'd eventually pick up copies of 2 and 3 again. As much as I loved the story and themes, again, I truly loved the stealth gameplay of MGS, the way it puts me on edge, the way it makes me be creative with solutions. It makes me happy, so I played MGS4 a lot, all the way up to and including beating the game on boss extreme difficulty with no kills. There's a few games in my life I've replayed more. I think everything else I have to say will just come out as we discuss the game going forward, so I'll hand it over to Brian here. So yeah, I... um. Four was the first one I had. I, I had played three when it was stuff was coming out, and I remember being interested in it and being like, "Oh, I need to play that at some point." But also being having only played three to that point, being deeply confused and not really knowing who anyone like what, any, what the character relationships were, and just being sort of like, so I didn't. I didn't play it. I didn't have a PS3 then, so I. I think it was. I had a vague idea of what happened in it, even for like a year, year and a half until I actually played one, particularly two. I couldn't find two for a while. So it was 2009, 2010 before I actually just watched all the stuff on, on looking back on what was probably like 240p YouTube videos. We remember, mm-hmm. we remember those in like 2010. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and still, and, and being like, I don't remember being disappointed at all. Just being like, oh yeah, that's what happens in it. Cool. And it kind of bounced off me and it wasn't until I went back through, I started, let's see. I would have played Peace Walker around then. Because yeah, Peace Walker was a 20, 2010 release, right? But I think the Xbox 360 version was 2012. So I played that. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That's also when I played it on PS3, so that makes sense. I played Ground Zeroes in 2014. And then to- the summer 2014 is when I got a PS3 and play- and actually played. Or was it? No, it was early 2015. So I played all the Uncharted games. I played four and didn't like it very much. <laughs> Like not to say like there's stuff there there are gameplay segments I think are legitimately good. The problem is that unlike three or even it has a lot of the problems two has without the weird transgressive like weird psychosexual stuff of two. Yeah, it two finds a way to break through a lot of its messiness into something worthwhile where four maybe doesn't. Four is the only one I've ever had that pro- that that Metal Gear problem with where people just. So they don't actually get to play the game. Mm-hmm. It does feel like every time there was a, that's really that more than anything else. I think, I mean, there's stuff I'm going to talk in one way. I'm excited to talk about this game. Cause I think it's the, we're going to criticize it more. Um, there, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to have a rant. I imagine at some point about the, uh, about the Metal Gear Solid three people, their role mm-hmm. and all that. And like, you know, there's, there's, there's always going to be a certain jankiness trying to tr- try and tie what eventually are three, Basically, un- games that are completely, almost completely unmoored from one another mm-hmm. into one canon. Like, there is always going to be janky, but that stuff I could get around if there was more game. Because, mm-hmm. like, there's, there's some stuff that's good. Act one, I think, is actually pretty well paced, but there's some stuff in two that I think is good, and you just don't get It's like 10 minutes. Even the stuff in four is really the only one I feel like you really get, like, a full three. I mean, three is barely, you barely even play three. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's very very sparse on the gameplay. But that's yeah. re- that's really because by that point I had really started. To, I, I had beaten Pitman Blood Money. I had been disappointed by Hitman Absolution. I had played Dishonored, played all three day, only three Deus Ex games at that point, 
and done full non-kill runs on those and full like really started opening myself up to stealth games and really figuring out like mm-hmm. how I like to play them. And I was really, really excited to be like, oh, this is the newest Metal Gear. Aside from, I mean, Peace Walker, it is a newer game than Peace Walker in a lot of ways. Like it's a more... You can do more. It's just functionally a more advanced game. Yeah, and I was really, really like, I just can't wait to mess with this game. And you just don't really get to. Yeah, I, even compared to MGS, there's, you know, a little bit in the Middle East, maybe like the first quarter of South America yeah. that you That's really get section. to, yeah, fuck around and like do Metal Gear stuff and crawl over maps um, in a way that you want to with like enemy patrol units and all that fun stuff. Um, there's a lot more set pieces in this game mm-hmm. um, of varying quality. Uh, yeah, and that whole Act 3 um, barely exists. Act 5 is literally like, you know, you have two minutes to get to the end of the thing and then you're into boss fights and all that stuff pretty yeah. much for the rest of the game. Um, so I I do think that is uh, the biggest problem with this game is not so much the length of cutscenes, although I totally get that criticism. It's just that relative to how much gameplay there actually is, um, it's just not much. I, st- I still think regardless of how, of how, how just chock full of retcons they are, how many characters are just changing motivations, even despite all that stuff, it's not that confusing, honestly. It's a pretty, it's a still relatively straightforward story, and it's still like engaging. Like the cutscenes are still kinetic, yeah. Less so than three. It's so the the cutscenes themselves, I don't really. I mean, there's there's issues with them, but like I still generally engage. I just the balance, the cutscene gameplay balance is, is way off. Mm-hmm. That's really it. I definitely agree with that, and it's kind of funny, uh, not funny, but uh, you know, they specifically the writing team wanted to tie up all the games into this. Like they made that their goal. Mm. Um, and whether that is because of theories we'll talk about, not theories, but ideas and themes we have about fan service, we'll, we'll hash it out as we go. But um, it is really interesting that they viewed it as a challenge when, as you say, really all three of the previous solid titles have three separate protagonists. And three separate points and like con- very different conceptually. It's why we, we never really got back to that balance with you. The closest is Peace Walker, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because MGSV is the other way, which I still I, I appreciate. Like I think I prefer that to this to this version mm-hmm. to four. If if you're going to give me the option of having the gameplay cutscene eighty twenty one way, and it's I'm going to take the eighty that's gameplay, not the eighty that's cutscene. Yeah, for sure. It's not eighty, but it's I mean it's more than sixty forty for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe the final scene hat. It at least held the Guinness Book of World Records longest uh, cutscene at like 75 minutes, or it might be 74. Um, I don't think anything's topped it since, but it's possible. I don't keep tabs on it. Well, uh, a game like Kentucky Route Zero is actually, it's not a game at all. It's all cutscenes, so that's actually longer. I'm very smart. more old hat for this podcast was discussing the video game landscape of 2008. Console-wise, we were a couple years into the quote-unquote seventh generation of consoles. Ooh, seventh gen. Ooh. <laughs> 
PS3, 360, Wii, and let's not forget the DS or PSP either. At this point, I really wasn't playing a ton of video games. Aside from Grand Theft Auto 4, I don't think I played any of the other games I'm about to mention. I'll let Brian chime in as things come up. Contrary-wise, this is when I started started really playing. Like, I'd always played video games, but like I've, I've talked before, 5th gen, I didn't have one. Mm-hmm. Like my de- my stepbrothers had a 64 and they had a PlayStation and I got to play mostly multiplayer games. So a lot of those games I had to come to later, like the actual good single player ones. And then six gen, I got I had a GameCube in 2003, but I didn't get an Xbox until 2005. I never had, I didn't get a PlayStation due to like 2007. So I was still way behind on those. This one is I got a 360 in 2006. Okay, yeah, so pretty close to launch. And I think. I think my mom, somebody had a Wii. We had a Wii at our house for like three years, so I got to play Galaxy and all those. So I yeah. feel like this is the first gaming generation where I was like ahead and I like was looking forward to stuff. This, this is really when I started having like lists. I, a, I also had a laptop by this point, so I was able to have my own computer. Right. But I, I was able to have like stuff I was really looking forward to, like li- like written down, which I still have, embarrassingly. May even be the same document. I've been pasting it on different computers for ten years now. I um, love it. I, that's great to me. But um, uh, this is when I first started really like having of like any kind of advanced schedule of what's coming out. Aside from like, ooh, a new Halo comes out at some point. I'll play that. So, uh, well, I'll mention the games, and if you want to chime in, go ahead. Uh, so the first is Fallout Three, uh, GTA Four. Never heard of it. <laughs> Dead Space, uh, Gears of War Two. Mm-hmm. Little Big Planet, Braid, Smash Brothers Brawl, Rock Band 2, God of War Champions of Olympus, which I believe is a PSP game. Champions of Olympus. That's not a huge game. I mean, it's a God of War game, but... It, it, it comes up when I Google yeah. top games yeah. of 2008, yeah. basically. Uh, Left 4 Dead and Mirror's I, I put Edge. Mirror's Edge on there. You had Bioshock on here. Bioshock is August 2007, and I know that distinctly because... I uh, my brother bought it like the weekend I started college. I okay. went over there. I went over there to stay because like at that point my dad, where he's still living now, is like was like less than two miles from my campus. Whereas my mom was still living. I think it was like eight miles. Mm-hmm. It's not that far, but I was at the point where I just started driving, and I was like, I don't want to drive far. I'm scared. <laughs> so I would go to stay at my dad's for a lot of weekends, and I distinctly remember my brother buying. The game Two Worlds, which was a really bad Oblivion, like a really bad mm-hmm. game. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched him play it for forty five minutes, and he was like, "This game sucks." And he went back to he wanted to go. I went to go unpack my stuff or do something down in the basement, and he came back an hour later. He was like, "I got this game, Bioshock. I've never heard of it." And I watched him play that. I distinctly remember that was the weekend before it, which is two thousand seven. So, long story yeah. short, yeah, no, Bioshock was Bioshock is oh seven. A lot um, of these, I had to make sure this wasn't. It's like first, like I had to yeah. try and do the best it might have been on a console or got like a pc release or something like that the three big ones that weren't metal gear were fallout gta and gears of war those are like the three big games smash bros is big too i suppose but even then it had sort of because melee was such a it it was it, it was a hit but even by that point it had bifurcated into people who just like to have that game to play at parties and melee people i see okay so it was a party game at that point when brawl came out it had already been like that's kind of a cult game like that's that's a game for those people. I see. Um, Rock Band was pretty big. Left 4 Dead was a vile game when they were still making games pretty big. I put Mirror's Edge on there because people liked Mirror's Edge. And Mirror's Edge is cool. A neat little game. Um, like Braid is Braid is an art game. Little Big Planet was a kid's game, but it was big. Mm-hmm. This is 
platformer, yeah. not yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then like Dead Space was pretty, but like Fallout, GTA, and and Rock and Gears of War were the three, I'd say, competitors for like the mainstream concept of what Game of the Year was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can say now with retros- with hindsight, only one of them is is close to GTA. It's close to I just gave it away. It's close to Metal Gear. Yeah, yeah. It's GTA Four, despite its problem, it has problems too. It's the huge. It's not the GTA I think back to or. I might be. It honestly is for me because I think it's the only one that has any kind of. I don't want to say politi- political ideology, but it is. It, it's not void like some of the pre- predecessors of it. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to think of a game that could be if if it if it wasn't deliberately being an anti-capitalist game. It's hard to imagine. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Like like you. I don't think you could make an anti-capitalist game and make it more anti-capitalist than GTA Four. GTA Four is a bleakly cynical game about just about the state of American capitalism in the late 2000s as it should have been yeah yeah no it totally did something happen in 2008 I can't think of anything that happened in American, no, capital- no, American no, capitalism no, nothing at all um, I will say uh, this is I mean, this is kind of like entering the modern age of games because mm. honestly when we covered all the previous Metal Gear Solid titles they all came out at bonkers times with uh, big big titles and I feel like this is the most tame yeah 98 2001 2004 or three of the five or six biggest game years in recorded history honestly like yeah 98 was like the gear the 3d games really blew up blew up and that's what grind of time came out half-life came out thief all these games and 2001 is gta and 2001 was like the first year i remember there being a big november release schedule i think i might have talked about mm-hmm. that before halo came right. out metal gear among them yeah metal gear came out metal gear was the big one melee ff10 ff10 was a little earlier but still was part of that launch window i feel like yeah, yeah, it was like a couple months around there. And so. then like 04 is, is the first year that I distinctly remember 04 was the first year that you were getting mainstream news outlets covering like big video game release this week. Mm-hmm. You were starting to see Half-Life 2 trailers and Halo 2 trailers in theaters. San Andreas came out then. So yeah, 08 is a much tamer year and, and, retro, and like relatively speaking. Let's get into some game design aspects now. I don't have much details on the graphical specs, but in my honest opinion, this game still looks absolutely fantastic, squeezing every last bit it could out of the PS3. There's less motion blurring or throttling down of frame rates here, and the art style and character design are just magnifique. Every wrinkle in Snake's face can be seen when he winces. Like with MGS3, the game's systems and mechanics make a big change to accommodate the leaps in technology, but I'd also argue to make one of the game's points. While MGS4 is still idiosyncratically Metal Gear, 
that aiming and shooting controls now mimic those of first-person shooters. The two trigger buttons are now used for shooting, left to shoulder or aim, and the right to fire your weapon. And this time around, Snake can freely move as he aims and fires. Gone are the days of stationary shooting. War has changed, it seems. <laughs> Maybe the biggest quality of life addition to MGS4's controls is the crouch walk. Now Snake can move across maps in a crouched manner, in addition to upright and laying on his belly, which allows him to keep low and move quickly and take advantage of cover and camo. It's just one of those things that once you get in Metal Gear Solid, it's hard to go back. While I spent most of MGS3 on the ground, MGS4 and onwards will find me in the crouch stance more often than not. I would say that honestly, it's you can still go back and play 3 as kind of a stand-up action game. It's just much, you have, there's a much more arcane is the word I'm looking for. Much more like specific control scheme you have to like, you really have to figure out how to do that with the weird controls. Whereas I remember picking four up, having just, I had, I had played through uh, the first three Uncharted games that same summer. That's Those are the games I got on my, on my uh, PS3 when I got it. And like, I just kind of went right from Uncharted to Metal Gear. Yeah. Like it really wasn't much of a learning curve. While lying prone on the ground, Snake also has more movements available to him. Snake can now play dead, inch forward like a worm, roll laterally, and even turn himself onto his back, so belly up, so he can do things like throw grenades behind him or inch backwards while shooting from the ground. And when either in crouched or prone position, Snake will have a white halo around him that gives him a sense of what's going on, the volatility of the war zone, which direction sounds are coming from, etc. I mentioned first-person shooters earlier. You can still go into first-person view when you are aiming your weapon and moving around as well, so you can literally play this game as a first-person shooter if you want. We'll discuss it as we go along, but among the game's themes is Kojima commenting on the homogenization of FPSs, of war-based shooters, and how so many games handle the same and try to ape each other. War has become routine, and me and you are those ID tag soldiers. <laughs> Speaking to the game's camera, MGS4 now handles like any other open-world third-person game in movement and camera control. Reminder, the free-floating camera only arrived to MGS3 in the subsistence re-release. Uh, which you'll need as, once again, there's no Soliton radar here to guide you, and there's a lot going on in these maps, so you'll need to rely on every sight and sound to help you get by. Put it on your left eye. Looks like an eye patch. I call it the Solid Eye. It's an all-purpose goggle that displays radar images and other data in 3D. You can also switch it over to light amplifying night vision. To help with that sight thing, Snake now brandishes the Solid Eye, a robotic eye patch attachment that gives Snake real-time battlefield data, or in other words, a motion detector-like radar, as well as markers on screen for enemies and items. The Eye also has a built-in binocular and night vision mode, an all-in-one visual recon device. For most players, this will be the item they have equipped the most. Just like MGM's 3, a lot of attention is paid to sound design. Snake's footfalls are once again audible unless you're sneaking as slowly as possible. That's all controlled by the pressure-sensitive analog sticks now. No longer do you have to press the D-pad to make Snake stalk. But of course, you'll hear enemies running by, gunfire and skirmishes, radio calls, PA systems, and all the like while you play MGS4. There truly is a lot to soak in in some of these areas, and all of it can be used to the skilled player's advantage. 
The environments are inherently varied in Guns of the Patriots. As the big series finale, lol, it's meant to be a jet-setting, globe-hopping adventure, another nod to the James Bond movies it so often takes after. You'll be in urban and jungle environments, hot and cold, indoors and out, and often even in a vehicle at some point. Mm. While I do wish there was more game there at times, there is a lot of variation that I appreciate. The environments have elevation, uneven ground, and varied vegetation and types of cover to get around. The crouch walk becomes especially handy here, as there's a lot of damaged ramparts and barriers to take cover behind. And, well, a lot of that cover is constantly changing, too. As you navigate these war zones, buildings will be blown away, walls will crumble, an ATV might run into a warehouse. So not only are these environments detailed and frantic, but also very dynamic. And big. Let me not forget that. The maps in this game are much larger than any we've seen in MGS before, which gives the players lots of room to work with, but also means that there are generally more enemies on hand to engage Snake if discovered. The enemy AI continues to improve naturally and is now geared towards war zones instead of just singular sentries patrolling maps. Enemy units will patrol in force, have sniper or overhead coverage, and have vehicle support from ATVs, tanks, and choppers. Enemy vision and hearing are especially improved. Not only do Snake's footfalls give him away, but some of his equipment like the solid eye can give away our hero's presence. Maybe the biggest leap in enemy AI and difficulty is the fact that it's not just soldiers this go around, especially in the final acts of the story. Geckos become sentry metal gears all over maps, with way more firepower, agility, and a higher line of sight than enemy soldiers. And dwarf geckos, or scarabs, or the balls with hands on them, can pretty much find you in any nook or cranny due to their small size. Likewise, the frogs, Ocelot's special security force, can leap all over maps and provide much fiercer battle than their PMC counterparts. That isn't to say, however, that you can't use the war zone to your advantage. Since the PMCs all work for Ocelot, they are essentially the bad guy in each war zone, which means you can, and should, team up with the local militias during firefights. Their general presence will be the focus of most PMC foes, and if you help them out by taking out guards and tanks, they'll let you be on the battlefield and even give you ammo and health items. If the PMCs and militias are engaged in an all-out shootout, that usually means the PMCs don't have reinforcements if Snake is discovered. This can be played, played to your advantage as required. Nooks and crannies, yes. <laughs> Diving a little more into Snake's new equipment and skills, the Octocamo. Camouflaging was a big hit in MGS3, and I think MGS4 properly takes it to the next level in a fun way. When equipped, the Octocamo will automatically change colors to your surroundings when up against a wall or prone on the ground. You avoid having to dive into menus now, and is a logical progression to the idea of camouflage. Logical, in quotes, relative to the Metal Gear Solid universe. The system is a sequel to MGS3, while the technology is a sequel to where we were in MGS2. And if you wanted to save certain camo patterns, you can do that through the start menu options. The Octa camo is necessary because, as the game tagline says, there is no place to hide, which Kojima parodies into no place to hideo or hideo several times. While there's still items to take cover behind, the maps are significantly bigger than any we've seen, and there will be larger areas without cover or shrubbery. 
Laying flat on the ground is going to be your best bet in many situations, and the Octocam will quickly adjust to give you cover. There will also be a few spots in the game where Snake can use the camo to blend in with statues, especially once he picks up the face camo edition. I really do love the Octa camo, and it also carries some thematic and narrative importance as well. I will say the one negative I find is that while the Octa camo rules, I don't feel as incentivized to take full advantage and crawl all over maps like I did in MGS3. Mm-hmm. I think part of that is in MGS3, you were doing that in part to discover new camo or weapons. But in, MG, but in MGS4, new camos are rendered useless and weapons can usually just be bought, which we'll get into in a bit. So while I appreciate the new camo system, which similarly has a percentage score in the upper right-hand corner, the rewards for crawling all over these maps feels lessened. I don't have a whole lot else to say about the camouflage anyway. It just it's, it's kind of... It has a similar form follows function sort of design that is usually great for video games. I guess that's how Nintendo designs games, but it sort of streamlines things in Metal Gear that I think some people, some people criticize and that needed to be streamlined, but it makes the game less, uh, I don't know, intentional. Mm -hmm. It feels less like you're doing something. feels less like a player driven action as it is just a really clever system. Yeah. I never felt I never felt incentivized to go off the beaten path and look for stuff in four, really ever. Yeah, I'm trying to do that for this playthrough, but it it's just not the same as MGS3, especially when you knew there could be a new great camo. And with MGS3, we discussed how some of the camos had like special bonuses and stuff. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you are taking a camo index hit, but because it studies your aiming hand or lessens how your stamina decreases. There's no such calculation or game planning like that in this game. Mm -hmm. And that gets to your point about you're making some intentional choices. Usually you're just picking the best camo index, but that's not always the case. And sometimes you just want to look cool for a cutscene and stuff like that. And that's a lot harder in this game as well. Allow me to introduce Metal Gear Mark II. Metal Gear. But this gear's not a weapon. It's a remote mobile terminal designed to provide you with operational support. Next, let's talk about the Metal Gear Mark II, a miniaturized Rex on wheels that follows Snake around, with Otacon's lovely face displayed on screen. The Mark II can be equipped in the item menu and used to scout out maps and even stun enemies with a shock. You will be in first-person mode when using the Mark II, but Snake can be seen controlling it with the PS3 controller of all things. One of the reasons this game is always going to be a PS3 game through and through. The Mark II serves some story purposes throughout the game as well, but its main use in-game justification is explaining how Snake and Drebin, the arms dealer, do business. When Snake picks up weapons on the battlefield, it's the Mark II delivering it to Drebin, and when Snake needs wares from the gun launderer, it's the Mark II bringing it back to Snake. It's an instantaneous transaction, so there's no lag built into the game. I guess we can talk about weapons next, since we brushed up against the topic a few times now. We all know the line about ID-tagged soldiers with ID-tagged weapons, but what does that mean for gameplay exactly? Since you're in active war zones, there's going to be a lot of dead soldiers and thus their weapons laying about. Weapon types will be inherently locked, or unusable, to Snake until he pays Drebin to unlock them. So while you may pick up an RPG from a fallen soldier, you may not be able to use it right away. There are some weapons, usually in some sort of weapons depot, that won't be locked on acquisition, but those aren't very common. 
In addition to what you find on the battlefield, once you meet Drebin, you can pretty much buy any gun you want, though you won't have the uh, DP is the currency. You won't have a lot of it for the good stuff until much later in the game. From pistols to anti-aircraft missiles, it's all there. Suppressors and ammo too, all instantly purchasable if you have the money for it. MGS4 easily has an arsenal to surpass any Metal Gear before it, and future installments Peace Walker and The Phantom Pain will evolve that idea even further. This serves as a stark departure from previous entries, where you picked up new weapons at very specific points in the game, and enemy weapons were not collectible as such. But I do think the purchasing of items, at any time basically, is part of the game's critique both on war, but more so on how games were slowly trending towards the non-stop in-game purchase. I'm not saying Kojima predicted loot boxes or anything, but the writing was on the wall for the future of games at that point. The horse armor in Oblivion had already come out, so... Yeah, it would not, not, does not take a genius to, to predict that one. Yes. Remember our MGS2 coverage when we described 2001 as a wild west for art and multimedia? That no homogenization had occurred broadly, be it in game design or controls or movie franchises? And no single algorithm that monetizes every possible experience existed yet? Well, it's now 2008, and all that stuff has taken shapeless form. Anyway, put a pin in that. Speaking to both the homogenization and commodification of games and war will be a big part of our ongoing MGS4 analysis. That's the stuff I think I get the most enjoyment out of this game with. Aside from like the good, the, some of the boss fights are good. But it is, there is a little bit, and this is a little bit, this is not um, uh, significantly smaller portion of, of what, what we call prequel syndrome, where uh, people like to criticize the, the, criticize in a positive way. People like to critique I guess that's the positive mm-hmm. uh, transmodification of that word. Uh, like to critique the Star Wars prequels as Iraq War, anti-Iraq War propaganda, and like speaking on, and it, they do do that. But people have to focus on that because the movies themselves are so dull and unenjoyable for so much of the runtime. Like you have to kind of ignore them as pieces. Like th- this is something you hear with two, where it's like, oh, it's not a fun game. You have to, you have to. Like all that, all that, all that cool stuff is sort of comes at the expense of a non enjoyable game. But like, I think two is a great game mm-hmm. when you play it, and four I think is less so. But it's not, it's not nearly as bad as prequels. A, I think it's a smarter things it's going for are smarter than what, yeah, what still results in being a, a mostly kind of bland liberal. I'm not quite bland, right? More toothless liberal critic, criticism of the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is going for much deeper monocultural sort of predictions but still there is a little bit of that where like you have to kind of it, do, it doesn't feel as seamless to me uh whereas like even one even mgs1 like you can get the sensation of playing the game contributes to the theming of the game whereas for a lot of the game it's just like well we'll get back to that cool we'll get back to that uh i think he's losing his fastball sort of this we'll, we'll get back to that uh criticism on the homogenization of gaming after you beat this naked lady in a fight mm-hmm and like, I, it just doesn't fit together. Too many cooks, I think. CQC, real big boss, huh? Close Quarters Combat, aka CQC, CQC, is once again back after its debut in MGS3. And like the shooting system, has to be entirely reworked for the new controller layout. When unarmed or equipped with the CQC compatible weapon, Snake, from either standing or crouched, can use the right trigger to grab his opponent, From there, he can throw, drag, choke, disarm, 
human shield, and last of all, kill his ensnared target. There are a few more options than in MGS3, and the controls are less finicky, so it's a win all around. But unlike MGS3, it's much easier to just shoot people. (laughs) (laughs) Holding soldiers up has been a staple since MGS2, and in games going forward, can be a really powerful tool, especially when non-lethally clearing areas. If a guard is held up, he will remain held up until he can see that he's not being threatened. That limits your options when the opponent is standing, but if you can get him on the ground and then hold him up, he'll lay face down in the dirt. In this position, the guard will only get back up again if he's discovered or you go into alert mode. This is different than the trank or choke because after a while the enemy will wake up from those attacks. Under Snake's life bar now is the psych meter, which is an evolution of the stamina meter from MGS3. Like in Snake Eater, Snake will regenerate life if the meter is full, and if it gets low, he'll find himself having shaky aim and the like. Altitude, the amount of time Snake spends crouching, and the intensity of the war zone can all affect Snake's psyche. When Snake is caught in bigger firefights, you will actually see a stress counter under the psych meter showing Snake's Snake's deteriorating mental state. If Snake's psych meter reaches zero, he'll pass out in battle, which could mean the worst if you're in the middle of a firefight. Psych can be recovered using specific items, including a syringe you receive from Naomi in Act 2, but also by having a cigarette or sitting in a cardboard box or drum can. But Snake's psych meter can also increase, decrease during cutscenes as well. We're measuring not just Snake's stamina, but his entire mental well-being. If he fails to light his cigarette or can't pull the trigger on a gun, that, well, makes Snake a sad boy. And you'll see a psych meter go down during the cutscene, which will lead into the next playable portion of the game. The game demonstrates this early to the player when we meet Drebin, and if you didn't know, you can press the X button repeatedly when your psych psych drops during a cutscene, and it will lessen the damage or help recover that psych. I'm going to be... as objective as I can, like that's cool. It's cool to have actual continuity between cutscenes and gameplay, especially when your game is 70% cutscenes. And that's really something that, uh, even in my seven or eight hours I played Death Stranding, that's something that I feel like that game really did well. So that's cool, like a nice through, through line to really, like in the same way that, like, it's cool that you have the interactive cutscene. That feels like a natural progression of the interactive cutscenes in three, mm-hmm. which is one of the few ways this game feels like a natural progression of three. I feel like this is a good time to talk about Sense, which is the game's organizing theme to follow up on Gene, Meme, and Scene from the three previous solids. Now, many will argue that it's not as well presented as those three previous games, and maybe we'll agree. But that's not going to stop us from going over Sense with our fine-toothed uh, podcast on Frontieris Comb. TM, buy in stores today. And I will also add that the other three games did beat you over the head with its overriding organizing principle. In MGS4, it's a little more subtle, which is not a word you generally will associate with Kojima. Sense, in its most basic form, is the way in which we experience the world. Sight, sound, touch, taste, and feel, our basic understanding of the world begins there. And none of this is necessarily new to Metal Gear. 
The importance of sight and sound as human senses has always been tantamount, and hell, MGS3 even clued us into Snake's sense of taste. All of these ways to interact with the environment become more vital in the war zones of MGS4. Working up the human cognition tree, sense can also refer to emotionality or how a person is feeling. Fear, pain, sorrow, wait no, sorry, wrong game. But those along with things like anxiety and unease are sensations we all feel. The stress counter on Snake increases when his situation becomes tenuous and he becomes less effective. How we're doing mentally and emotionally affects us physically. Emotions are wrapped up with the members of the Beauty and the Beast Corps or BNB Corps, which we'll get into in a future episode. But in addition to them, you can get emotive ammo or non-lethal ammo that causes the same emotions embodied by the bosses. For example, the crying ammo will cause a soldier to drop his weapon and start crying on the battlefield, while the screaming ammo will send him running away in fear. In MGS4, basic sensations and emotions are controlled by the Sons of the Patriots, aka the SOP system which is in every soldier and PMC across the world. In order to best commodify the human body for perpetual war, pesky things like fear or high-strung nerves or a distaste for battle would be impediments. Thus, the system exists to regulate everyone's senses so that war can continue unabated. Which gets me to the next definition of sense, sense of self. The SOP system is in, a way, removing originality or uniqueness from soldiers. They are being stripped of their sense of self to be cogs in the war economy. At times it may be beneficial, see the way rat patrol can communicate on the battlefield. But ultimately, it's stripping these soldiers of their humanity, preventing them from confronting their trauma because nanomachines keep them suppressed. And make no mistake, trauma is at the core of MGS4 thematically. PTSD is on display in Snake, Merrill, perhaps most of all the BNB Corps. Raiden and Drebin, former child soldiers, you better know they have PTSD. Trauma can threaten sense of self most of all, especially when not confronted or treated. The system prevents soldiers from doing just that, so as they commit acts of war, they are not morally and psychologically grasping with the horror they unleash. To be clear, the Patriots want this deterioration of self. It becomes much easier to exact control on a populace when everyone is regulated to feel and behave in a certain way. To quote the Matrix again, it's exactly the thinking of a machine. Even the opening monologue about ID tag soldiers, ID tag weapons, and the like is about how we all fit into the system. And well, I think that's a meta theme about the player too. We aren't so much the robust experiences and hypocrisies that make up a human anymore. We are our avatar and username. We're all logging into our silly little consoles and playing our silly little games, further cut off from each other as we live more and more in our digital worlds. Look no further than your average Twitter main character of the day for people who have lost all sense of self. We all also, more importantly, I think, um, we have to define ourselves by the specific you know, billion dollar brands that we, uh, we, def- we it, like, like feudal lords, we, people attach themselves to Marvel and they have, must defend Marvel at all times. And if you criticize Marvel in any way, you're not being fair to them. Well, that's just one thing. Like it happens with every, it's, there's, the only the only way to be a fan of a thing that now is to sign up to do PR for them for free for the rest of your life, basically. Yeah, you're not allowed to like something a little bit. You either have to hate it or you love it. Like there's no there's no room for nuance in any corporate art, which is what we all experience, by the way. And most mainstream games are still corporate art, despite 
the efforts of very talented people working on those games to, to not make them so. With very few exceptions, I would say there's almost no AAA games. And it's listen, a lot of these games are very, very good. Uh, we may be doing something in the future that is literally me making Manu play a lot of these games. But like, but like that doesn't mean that they're not still in, in the end and they're not corporate art. Very, very few of them, they're, they're made to make money. That's what it is. They're, they are produced to turn a profit. And despite whatever else I want to say about MGS4, that is definitely not the case with MGS4. Yeah. And I don't want to call Kojima an anti-capitalist or anything like that, but starting with MGS4, you see specific brands and corporations appear more in these games. Um, and I, you know, some of it is, you know, just Kojima being Kojima because there's an iPod in this mm-hmm. game. The PlayStation 3 is all over it. The Regain, you know, energy drink and stuff like that. He's certainly interested in what that iconography says. He's certainly interested in the idea of people alighting themselves behind that kind of iconography and i like again he is a huge he he loves to do he loves to promote things he likes but those are things he likes i don't think there's anything you could look on his like despite how ravenously he he pursues some on, on his twitter how much he like likes to promote it, those are things he likes he's not being paid to do that he may be getting paid to do that but it's not his primary goal for sure yeah yeah and i think uh if anything else, a reading you can take from these games going forward with all these brands is how capitalism and the war economy, which is again a theme in uh, Peace Walker and MGSV in different ways, um, you know, all kind of have to interact. And I think Kaz's, you know, McDonald Miller's burger um, is a little bit of that as well. But we'll save that for when we get to it. Yeah. Uh, but going back to the sense of self thing, it's all about how we relate to each other via proxy which is another key word for MGS4. Proxy wars are being fought. Proxy sites are being hacked. Snake is a proxy for the player, but also for Big Boss, while Ocelot is a proxy for Liquid, etc. Throughout MGS4, we are trying to figure out if we are dealing with the true self of what we encounter or just a proxy for it. Now, in the Japanese version of the game, the word will is super titled as sense. There might be some translation messiness going on here, but we do know that will is a powerful concept in the world of Metal Gear. Deciphering the boss's will causes the fracture between Big Boss and Zero, and the constant battle over what her will truly was will dominate all MGS narratives onward. The Patriot system in MGS4 is one interpretation of the boss's will. But there is also the will of Solid Snake, or rather his sense of duty, which is also shared by Otacon. Snake is hunting Liquid Ocelot because he must, because no one else can, because it's his duty and big or small, we must all do our duty, he said, quoting Stannis Baratheon. Naomi even points out that Snake's will is what is holding his body together at this point. Otacon, too, feels a sense of responsibility for this world of snakes and Metal Gears, both for his part and later what we'll learn about his shithead father, too. Raiden, Meryl, hell, even Ocelot and Eva are in one way or another acting out a sense of duty to some ideal, which reminds me of that Raiden MGS2 quote about how you need something higher. It has to be pure will, backed by courage or ideals or something like that. Why? 
has changed. The age of deterrence has become the age of control. All in the name of averting catastrophe from weapons of mass destruction. And he who controls the battlefield controls history. So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontieres at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I don't have a quote for this one yet. I'll have one soon. <laughs> Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, here's to you. That's right. Fight me. Coward. No. Don't fight me, please.